This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, a host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history, focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Bethany Wigan, Dr. Carolyn Fornoff, and Dr. Patricia Kim about their new edited volume, Timescales. Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Bethany, Caroline, and Patricia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aspen. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for for agreeing to the interview. And and I was wondering if before before we begin um, talking about about this wonderful book, Timescales, if um, you could begin by telling us a bit about yourselves and your background. Um, Let's start with Bethany and then go to Caroline and Patricia. Super. Um, so I'm speaking to you from Philadelphia, where I have lived for almost 20 years now. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and my home discipline and department is Germanics, and I'm a scholar of comparative literature and environmental humanities with some students at the University of Pennsylvania uh, about eight years ago, I started the Environmental Humanities program, and uh, Carolyn, in particular, was really instrumental to getting it off the ground and founding the Graduate Fellows program. Um, and Patricia was a Graduate Fellow as well, so that's how we know each other. Great, and I'll jump in next. Um, my name is Carolyn. Um, I am currently speaking to you all from Urbana-Champaign in rural Illinois. I'm an assistant professor of Latin American literature and culture at the University of Illinois. And um, my work is also at the intersection of Latin American studies with a particular focus on Mexico and Central America and how Mexican and Central American artists, writers, and filmmakers are responding to situations of environmental crisis. And I'm Patricia Kim. I'm dialing in from New York City. I'm assistant professor, faculty fellow at New York University. And my work focuses on visual and material culture, um, monuments, performances, and so on from the ancient Mediterranean and Western Asia. And I also research, teach, and publish on um, topics engaging with contemporary artists um, who build monuments and also take them down, as well as monuments who are, excuse me, artists who respond to ecological change through a variety of different media. Wonderful. And your your varied um, interests and um, and geographical interests, uh, scholarly and geographical interests are, you know, come through in this book um, so much in so many different ways. And I mean, Let's just let's just get started talking about it. I mean, um, I guess the first question is, how did you how did you come up with this idea? And then 
would you just like to to talk about the book a little bit and and um just kind of the baseline um ideas to to get the audience acquainted yeah yeah i i um i can get us started um this book is as we discuss in the co-authored introduction um this book uh, has evolved out of a conference that the graduate student fellows at the university of pennsylvania planned um and i really was just the mentor um and kind of tried to 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 support their work. So it's really Carolyn and Patricia, and there were uh, several other graduate students uh, who, who got that going. Um, and then we, we decided that um, it would be worth it to sort of memorialize that conference in a way and to carry its legacy further um, in, the, in the form of a bounded book. Um, and it was really actually, I think, incredibly generative to think about how the types of what we call in the book's introduction, slow science or slow research methods could actually fit into a book. Um, and it, it gave us the opportunity to think about the timescales of scholarly production, um, the kinds of research outcomes that resist um, a quick uh, kind of publish or perish type of um, timescale and how we could resolve our concerns to represent experimental methods in slow science um, in a book form. So we, we took the challenge. Uh, we worked uh, pretty intensively together over a period of, I think, a little more than a year um, with just a terrific set of authors, some who uh, came from the conference and uh, some uh, who we, 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 we um, commissioned otherwise. Yeah, to sort of follow up on what Bethany was saying, as graduate fellows of the Environmental Humanities Lab at Penn, um, we were all coming from different disciplines. Uh, some of us work on sort of the ancient world, others on contemporary and modern Latin America. Um, and we noticed that despite our sort of research, the differences within our research interests, that we were all sort of concerned and curious about the question of ecological temporalities, uh, their incommensurabilities. And so we wanted to create um, a creative conference, if you will, or symposium and gathering where we could take just transdisciplinary approaches um, to this topic without any expectations for how the conversations might uh, result. Um, we felt that the idea of time and in particular the time scale was broad enough or capacious enough uh, for us to sort of think um, about ecologies, um, but from but not from a single disciplinary position. And so that was one of the sort of joys of working on this project from the conference to, to the book really um, is to be able to sort of think about this, this, this concept um, that one cannot approach through one single disciplinary lens. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we really landed on this idea of the temporality of ecological change as being really at the center of a lot of crucial questions in this era of climate change. Um, climate change at once seems to be an incredibly urgent problem that requires action in the here and now. And yet it's um, unfolding over deep time, as well as its origins in colonialism and empire, um, we felt really require not just methods from any singular discipline, but rather conversations um, among scholars as well as artists who represent different practices um, of scholarly inquiry and forms of knowledge making to together grapple with what it means to think about time, not just in a linear sense, um, but time as cyclical, as, um, you know, uh, discontinuous, um, uh, time as rupture. I'd like to just jump back in. Um, this is Bethany. I think... Um, you know, we, we wrote the introduction to this book, um, you know, now probably three or four years, maybe three years ago. Um, and I think that it's really important to kind of notice um, that it was very much motivated um, by 
discussions that continue to to go on about dating the Anthropocene and when that um, much discussed and in some cases much hated term uh, should be um, be thought to originate. Um, not the term, but when does the time of the Anthropocene begin? Um, and I think one thing that we we felt uh, and and in a in a graduate uh, seminar that I that I taught that both Carolyn and Patricia were in, we talked a lot about um, the importance of a long Anthropocene, um, maybe not as long as, you know, 8,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture, but that by dating the Anthropocene to the Capitalocene or to the racial Capitalocene in particular, we were able to represent the ways that climate change a uh, part of the Anthropocene, of course, um, was also deeply inter- it intersected so deeply um, with the slave trade um, and with uh, racial racial uh, capitalism, with colonialism, um, and I think that um, because of our group's um, interest in um, histories beyond the modern or the contemporary, we were already quite attuned to the ways that contemporary eco-criticism, I think in particular, um, has a fairly presentist um, emphasis, um, maybe even bias. So we really wanted to offer an intervention that complicated the kind of short-term um, scholarship or the, the kind of presentist focus of much environmental humanities work. And your your work really does show through in in that way, and to kind of shift things up I, I, and and play with the temporality of and the spatialness of the book. Let's go to like the very end, uh, chapter fourteen, with uh, Beatrice Cortez's "The Memory of Plants" and the way that she she speaks about how plants are going have a specific memory that will possibly outlast the the human experience and. I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how ecology mixes with with memory, especially when we're talking about something like modernity and, and the construction of, of the historical narrative surrounding modernity and all of the, 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 the consequences and violences that, that surround it as well. Um, I'll jump in here to speak a little bit about Beatriz's work. Um, So Beatriz Cortes is just this fabulous visual artist, as well as a scholar located in Los Angeles. Uh, She's an incredibly important figure within the field of Central American studies. She wrote a fabulous um, scholarly book called The Aesthetics of Cynicism, which is about how uh, during the post-war period in Central America, a lot of artists and writers responded Um, to the failure of the leftist revolutions in the Isthmus with sort of despair and disillusionment. Um, Cortes herself uh, is a refugee of El Salvador's civil war, um, and now she is uh, both a scholar and an artist working in L.A. And she works, um, I hope, uh, Patricia, you'll speak a little bit more about this in a moment, but she works uh, kind of on this monumental scale. And so I think kind of in contrast with this Um, idea of cynicism, her work is really utopian in its temporal projection. And by that, I mean, she's really interested in the way, the ways in which histories of migration intersect with the planetary history. Um, And so a lot of her artworks, for instance, Um, use indigenous um, techniques, and so uh, sort of projecting them into the far off future. Um, and I think this really ask is, asks audiences to think about why do we often think about indigenous peoples as just part of our past rather that, than as part of our future. Um, and so the idea of how plants themselves also carry the memory of all the practices and events that have shaped the planet as we now know it, I find to be incredibly powerful take on post-humanism that doesn't sort of um, lose that the importance of situated racial um, histories. 
Yeah, to add on to what um, Carolyn is saying about Beatriz's work, um, she, you know, she's not only working with plants as carriers of memory, but also her most recent projects on glacial erratics um, sort of think about different kinds of, let's say, um, non-human, but rather, but nevertheless vibrant and lively um, things um, that, that live with within and are part of our Earth's history as carrying those memories that Carolyn um, was talking about. What I love about um, Beatriz's work in particular is how she reflects so beautifully and um, I think really compellingly on, on temporal simultaneities. Um, Carolyn was talking a bit about this, how pasts, both deep and recent, recent historical paths, um, really inform and should inform our futures, um, even futures where humans are, you know, no longer exist, perhaps. Um, I think in the book, you know, Carolyn mentioned this, but she writes, quote, we always imagine indigenous people being part of our past, but I want to imagine them as part of our future. And so I think Cortez's work really um, offers a sort of critique also, right, Um, um, about sort of, you know, white supremacies and alienations, um, sort of the ways in which global colonialism continues to haunt um, communities uh, today. And I think one of the strengths of our book, Timescales, is um, our inclusion of artists in um, these experimental interludes that we call etudes that sort of punctuate um, the text of scholarly essays. Um, Not only because these artistic works offer, I think, epistemologically useful ways of thinking about environmental time, but also because they offer sort of senses of what kinds of worlds are possible. Um, So offering, I think, um, hope and even joy um, and, and care uh, in, in a moment where, or in discussions of climate change that can often, that often are grim. Um, and so that's what, I, I really love how these artistic interludes sort of capture the essence of speculative inquiry, I think, and open-endedness um, that Bethany and Carolyn and I were, were trying to, um, you know, we're trying to lead with in co-editing this book. And that comes across really well. Um, and and one question I did have was, while you were beginning and 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 going into this collaboration, did you have like, did you have the idea of including these these interludes and and create and, and, and including the artists and 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 having these um, speculative inquiries? Was that was that part of the project at the beginning, or did that come later as you were? we're trying to figure out really what to, how how to uh, like edit the book. Um, I can maybe jump in here. Uh, This is Bethany speaking. Um, The program in environmental humanities at Penn um, has really foregrounded arts driven methods. And two of the uh, interludes in this book um, that by Mary Maddie, artist Mary Mattingly, a social practice artist and sculptor, as well as um, Dan uh, Rothenberg, Troy Harian, and Mimi Lean, who are um, theater artists, um, they were artists in residence with the program and developed um, their own, you know, full scale, um, in some cases, live arts, um, in some cases, a hybrid of uh, floating sculpture and live arts uh, sort of studio, um, in the case of, of Mattingly's wetland um, boat. But um, they were so generative in our thinking that I think really from the beginning and Please, Carolyn and Patricia, jump in here with your recollections. But I think we couldn't really have imagined this book without them, particularly the methodology of devised performance, which Pig Iron Theater Company, uh, which Dan Roth- artist Dan Rothenberg is a co-founder of, um, was really helpful in our thinking about what experimental environmental humanities would be what we we were very conscious of a kind of making it up as we go um cobbling together 
disciplinary methods from often incommensurate disciplines, um, but also uh, methods from uh, extra academic uh, areas of inquiry, such as theater making um, and community engaged practices. Um, so the the artists, both in the works that they were making, as well as in their own research methods, were just incredibly generative for us and really had, I think, to be part of this book. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think the arts are so central to um, the vision of the environmental humanities that Bethany has helped cultivate at Penn. Um, arts, you know, as a form of knowledge making, as a form of, of methodological inquiry, that uh, because the, the, you know, the one of the contributions that we wanted to demonstrate with this book is how different disciplines can speak to and uh, percolate next to each other, um, we, we felt it was really important to include the artists there. And so on one end of the spectrum, we have art, and on the other end, we have science. And that was another part that you really emphasize, that we need to bring the humanities and the sciences together. And um, in, in going back to the, to the beginning, at the, at the beginning, um, or in, the, in the first chapter, you have an oceanographer and a literary scholar having what you call chit chats. Would you like to, to talk about these these open-ended chit chats and, and what they symbolize within your, your greater discourse of time scale? Sure, we actually um, were so inspired by authors Frankie and Jason's um, concept of the chit chat that we used used it um, to to formulate our own method to conceptualize what we as co-writers were doing in the introduction um, and and to some extent our work also as co-editors. The chit chat, um, I think, gave both the kind of an important nod to contingency that there wasn't um, always a a better reason for why we were collaborating other than chance had thrown us together into uh, an occasion to be able to make a book together. Um, And also to not shy away from acknowledging the contingencies that we are all increasingly dealing with as climate change um, and other ecological crises um, continue to disrupt, um, let's say, established ways of doing and knowing. And this is Patricia here, just to add on what I love about Jason and Frankie's sort of chit chat um, is not only its open-endedness, but it's sort of advocating for these pessimistic approaches, um, collaborations that lead to sort of nothing. Um, I would even say failure. Um, these are all sort of concepts and results that, um, as academics, uh, you want to avoid in order to, I don't know, say, receive tenure and promotion, for example. Um, but to kind of take this space within the book um, to, I think, again, in an active sort of speculative performance, really model what these exchanges might may or may not produce um, as as sort of necessary right within this, this the so-called Anthropocene is something that I think um, is really compelling and the reason for which uh, and the reason why we I think uh, foregrounded the other conversations and contributions in the book with with their essay in particular. Yes, this is Carolyn jumping in here. I just have to say, you know, I, I do think that Jason and Frankie's essay is one of the ones that has stuck with me the most um, because they embrace the chit chat um, and the potential failure of distant disciplinary collaborations. And I think what that teaches me is that when we when we embrace interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity, we can't always expect it to produce um, a quote unquote productive outcome, right? Sometimes collaborations uh, lead nowhere um, and it's the process that matters um, that teaches us more about our own disciplines and about each other. Um, and so in their their co-authored chapter, they talk together about different methods for understanding the timescales of the ocean. 
um, both through literary studies as well as through oceanography. And uh, they, they confront the um, incommensurability of their methodologies and, and what can be gained by having these, these conversations. Um, and, and for that reason, it's, I think it's one of the most um, interesting and experimental chapters in the book. Um, this is Bethany again. I, I wanted to offer just one final thought on why it was that I think that um, Frankie and Jason's chit chats were so um, generative for us. And part of it has to do with the fact that Frankie and Jason at the time that they wrote this article were themselves graduate students. And the book as a whole, um, much like um, my now very uh, accomplished uh, co-editors and co-authors, they were then uh, when we when we wrote it. They were graduate students. And I think pervading this volume is an excitement about younger work. And, it, and Frankie and Jason really exemplify that fresh work, important work. Um, and the excitement about the this fresh work, I think, coming from a sense of real frustration with received models um, of, of what doing, for example, eco-criticism might look like if one came from a literary studies background or environmental sciences, if one came, you know, from the earth sciences um, fields, as some of our authors do. So we wanted to, um, I think, really foreground that we were doing something new and fresh. And it was really quite interesting. Um, the reviews that the University of Minnesota Press commissioned really spoke um, to the to the sort of youngness of the volume. There are many graduate student author or then graduate student authors in the book. Um, and um, that was a, a calculated risk that we took um, when when composing the book, but it was one we felt was incredibly important um, to take. Yeah, and and it, it was successful because you really do get the idea of this this not just interdisciplinary, but inter, intergenerational kind of um, anxiety and and how the different how how different narratives have have attempted to navigate that in the past and um, navigate that moving forward and and i really do like the idea of not to expect a positive outcome because one one thing that I, I think your book really expresses in terms of of the the idea of um of modernity is that it shows is that there's always this positive positivism that's that's built in that's expected to to always produce something of quote-unquote value that will enable some kind of solution which we're, I think we're realizing more and more that like, that's not necessarily the case. And um, I think this kind of, this comes out in the, in the first attitude um, where it, it's, it's a play talking of uh, titled a period of animate existence. Um, would you, would you like to talk about that play in itself and, and uh, maybe the, as well as the, the interview that you, you had with the director, um, Dan Ravenberg, um, Bethany? Yeah, sure. Um, a period of animate existence was developed when um, Dan Rothenberg, uh, composer Troy Harian, and um, set designer Mimi Lean were artists in residence with us at the Penn program. And um, they presented uh, a very early study um, that built toward um, the full scale uh, kind of operatic production that happened about a year and a half later. They presented this study, um, their etude, at the Timescales Conference where this um, where this book had its early origins. And I can, of course, only speak for myself, but I found the multi-generational performance that was staged um, both as an etude and then which became the centerpiece of the full-blown five-act um, theatrical extravaganza, um, that multi-generational dialogue was actually the most moving um, piece. Um, the final work was um, premiered at Philadelphia's Fringe Theater Festival. Um, it was reviewed in the New York Times. We were very happy with um, the notice that it got. Um, it was a experimental work, you know, and um, it received very mixed reviews, um, very provocative reviews, I think. Um, it 
featured a full chorus, um, the the incredible voices um, that were on the on the stage um, at the Annenberg Center. Um, it had ten year olds uh, in major speaking roles. It had. Um, original video projected on screens. It featured a talking halal truck, which might have been my um, (laughs) favorite character, um, who spoke via the advertising sort of scrim that scrolled along. Um, It was um, a complicated and really, I think, poignant meditation on what it means to be alive and what it means to be confronting death and doing, I would say, even um, pre-traumatic grieving um, for for all that we are losing at this moment. Um, I got the chance, because I do live in Philadelphia, because director Dan Rothenberg is in Philadelphia and our other collaborators were in New York. It was easy for me to go back and forth to between New York and to um, the theater's offices and performance and rehearsal spaces here in Philadelphia. I was a dramaturg on the um, the show. It was um, incredibly interesting um, to really think with um theories and philosophies of animism, of liveliness, and and also about the, theatrical and, and sort of ritual aspects of mourning and memory. Um, it was a fantastic collaboration and, and one which, um, you know, had a kind of uncertain outcome, I think, the one that feels very resonant. Although it was much longer than a chit-chat, it has that same kind of experimental and and uncertain kind of um, ending. And that experimental idea just, I mean, it it just resonates throughout this this whole text um, in terms of just being willing to Try these these different these different ideas and not and and have trust that just the process themselves will will be powerful in in some way and um and and you know not and and even if if it doesn't if it doesn't have have this kind of capitalistic kind of value um, attached to it and and to to take us back a little bit though. Um, I, I'm curious how how you decided to break up the the book um, just kind of logistically because there's three sections um, and then and then of course they're they're divided by these these um, these etudes and 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 then and then um, summed up very well with a with a coda. Um, what what was your thought process in in designing this book and what a great question, Aspen. And of course, now I'm looking back at the table of contents because I'm recalling that we felt that all of these pieces, I, I, so I remember, you know, the three of us sitting down together and looking at all the pieces and a lot of them speak so well to each other that I think we came up with several different iterations of how the book could be organized. Um, but ultimately, we felt that, you know, some of the pieces just really worked well together. Um, so I'm thinking about, um, for instance, um, Charles Tong's piece about time machines and time-lapse aesthetics. We paired it with Jen Teleska's piece, Fishing for the Anthropocene. Um, and so Charles Tong is a, a literary scholar and Jen Teleska, I believe, is she an anthropologist? Um, okay, great. <laughs> and um, I think what, you know, both of them, through their different disciplinary methodologies, are thinking about ways of understanding and ordering time. And so in Charles's chapter, he talks about the time machine in modernist literature and how the time machine sort of operated as an aesthetic device for this kind of simultaneous straddling of different times, um, of zooming in and out, um, of of thinking about time at a variety of scales. And Jen Teleska in her piece um, uh, develops a concept that that I 
that I find really fascinating called Technocratic Time. And there she talks about how the international governance body on um, uh, ICAT on fishing um, sort of orders time and the way that fish can be, um, you know, fished, (laughs) you know, thinking about fish as stocks, um, as these units. Um, And so by pairing these essays together, we were really interested in the ways in which um, time is sort of segmented and broken down into bits, or time can be um, thought about through these different temporal registers. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is Bethany. I I also want to speak to our use of etudes um, and our use kind of throughout the different sections of the books of um, metaphors from music and particularly from the kind of European classical tradition. As you know from listening to us speak, none of us are music musicologists or we're kind of hobby musicians at, at best. And um, we were looking for a heuristic that would prove readily legible to a non-chronological Uh, ordering of time. We were so interested and so insistent that everything about this book needed to disrupt narratives of progress. So the chit-chats disrupt narrative of progress, but the insistence on repetition, on variation, on circling, on doing again, on provisionality, on etudes rather than polished pieces was something that we as sort of non-specialists thought this is the perfect way to capture what we are intending with this book. Um, and I do think it's quite successful. I do want to say that in when we workshopped um, the book uh, at, in the working group um, that that we were part of here at Penn, the the trained uh, musicologist in the room said, "I'm so puzzled why you are choosing etudes. It's such an elite European sort of musical form. Why are you doing this?" So in some ways, you know, we thought like, "Oh gosh, maybe we should, you know, like abandon this." Um, I think you know come from a, a kind of continental European perspective, um, I thought, you know, it, it was useful in reaching certain audiences that we we might not otherwise reach if we didn't use the language uh, of etudes and uh, variations. Um, but it came, you know, with certain risks as well. Um, but ultimately, it was um, the the vernacular that allowed us to express that we were telling neither a progressive narrative or a declensionist narrative. It was one that was circling and whose outcome is very much uncertain. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I don't know if this is what you were going for, too, but at the beginning of A Thousand Plateaus, they have the, um, the composition that's all muddled and going in different directions. And it definitely um, reminded me of that as well. I'm glad, Aspen, that you that you saw that connection. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just read it for my, my, my thesis. So it's, it's, it's still pretty, uh, pretty fresh in my, in my mind, but I mean, kind of going along with, with that idea, I think you, you, along with this, this musical metaphor, I, I feel like you really created these, it, the, the book itself feels like a, an ecosystem and has these different biomes that, that work in different ways and work together, but at the same time, you can, as you said, th- there's these puzzle pieces that that can go, get, that can be placed back and forth and speak to each other in in different ways, even if if they're they're less obvious. And um, the the second attitude um, with the with the floating experiments um, on on the uh, I'm gonna butcher this uh on on the river in in philadelphia i don't know how to actually say that word so i'm going to to let you take that um but would you like to to talk about that that second etude and and the the meaningful or the the meaning behind it 
Um, this is Patricia. I can sort of jump in and attempt to uh, describe uh, Mary Mattingly's wetland project on the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia. Uh, when I first moved to Philly Aspen, I had no idea how to pronounce that either. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Um, and wetland was a floating experiment. Um, it was, I think, as Mattingly would describe a form of performance art, uh, the importance of performance's method was something that Bethany was uh, discussing a little bit earlier on in this conversation. And um, it opened in 2016, uh, was docked at Bartram's Garden and moved sort of up and down the Schuylkill River. And what this this experiment was was sort of an experiment in living um an experiment that allowed sort of collaborators participants students philadelphia residents and visitors to kind of explore um not only the urgencies of but the kind of practicalities of developing a social system based on mutual care so um as you mentioned the book is sort of an ecosystem mattingly i think tried to really intentionally uh, create an ecosystem in which different uh, people, human and non-human species, really could uh, show up, um, inhabit the space of, of the sort of floating um, uh, boat uh, or building, um, reading, uh, cleaning, um, drinking, eating, sleeping, I think working. Um, and so it was really envisioned as an experimental lab um, that could foster those encounters. Um, it's interesting that in June, well, not interesting, interesting, but also what I mean by interesting is actually very sad, um, that in 2017, in the summer, I believe, that I don't know if that's correct, actually, Bethany, but um, I know that wetland sank due to sort of the unusual torrential rains and debris um, that sort of filled it. And so, um, unfortunately, that's sort of how this experiment I don't know if it came to an end, but that was a major challenge. I remember. Um, but well, maybe that, I could jump in here. Yeah, um, yeah, this is yeah. Anthony. Um, the wetland project at the PPEH, the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities Lab, um, originated in um, work that was funded by the Whiting Foundation that Mary Mattingly and I um, collaborated on. And it had come to an end um, after uh, many of the experiments that Patricia just mentioned were carried out. Um, it was a place where Penn faculty offered courses. Um, the Timescales Conference had a party on the boat that was, by all accounts, uh, the best academic party our conference attendees had ever been to. Um, our book authors, they ask us regularly if they can come back and we have to tell them, unfortunately, wetland sank. Um, the story of the boat sinking um, is, is, as Patricia said, very sad. Philadelphia, one of the climate impacts uh, that we are experiencing is wetter, um, wetter weather and also more precipitation in very short periods of time. Um, this has made boating, recreational boating at in, in the Schuylkill River, that hard to pronounce river, um, actually almost impossible. Um, and it also swamped wetland. Um, the collaboration with with Penn uh, had come to an end. Mary uh, was awaiting um, the boat to be towed uh, to a boatyard uh, where it would then have gone on um, to a museum uh, in New York. Um, and uh, it was not salvageable. Um, we ended up uh, hiring a, a a company of scuba divers who inserted what are called bladders, um, basically like large airbags that can be um, inflated while they're underwater. And those um, were inserted into the hull of the boat and it was floated and then towed away and uh, scrapped um, and put back into the, the sort of, uh, unfortunately, into the waste stream. So it had a very um, sort of uh, sad end, um, but it was one who 
which was witnessed and I think powerfully discussed by the book um, author, um, one of our, our authors, uh, artist Kate Farquhar, who has a very lyrical and moving account of uh, saying goodbye um, to wetland. Kate um, collaborated with me and with Mary um, over uh, a several month period. Um, she was the caretaker of a wetland of the physical structure and of the artists um, who uh, we called ecotopian toolmakers, um, who enlivened um, and activated the space in various ways while um, our collaboration went on. And while wetland itself has sunk, uh, the Ecotopian Toolmakers project lives on. And in fact, uh, right now, uh, we have just announced a cohort of five new Ecotopian Toolmakers who uh, will be building prototyping and showcasing ecotopian tools for water justice. Um, and this project, which is a direct outgrowth of this collaboration um, with Mattingly's Wetland, um, is featured at the Independence Seaport Museum out on Philadelphia's other river, the Delaware. So um, there are also happy outcomes to this story, um, but also, you know, very uh, sad legacies, a sort of sense of loss and unexpected, um, unexpected really kind of deaths that climate change uh, has caused. And that leads us into the, the third section so well, because so much of I mean that it's it's first I guess it's so powerful that the performance ended with with its sinking, but then there's this like genealogy that lives on and and we and we've talked a little bit about you know the idea of utopia and how how it's linked into into parts of of the progressive narrative and um and and the third chapter itself is it it, it talks about lost worlds but also how how indigenous people and have have moved into and migrated into new worlds and, and learn learn to to navigate those worlds as well. And I, I didn't know if you wanted to, to to talk about either the 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 silence of of destruction that is brought up in one chapter or um, or the numerous other other concepts that that are discussed within this section. Yes, I think that within uh, Y.T. Dimmick's uh, chapter, she talks about the um, silence of frogs as being a way to sort of witness um, extinction. And she um, reads this, this silence of frogs that can be understood as sort of a symptom of the sixth extinction in tandem with a reading of Thoreau and his observations about Native Americans. Um, I believe that the chapter that follows that one is um, by Paul Mitchell, who's an anthropologist um, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, sorry, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, it's also paired with uh, Imanja Brown's um, reading of um, the practice of eating dirt and how that sort of consuming of the earth is another way of, of um, being witness to environmental transformation. Thank you. And, you know, we are, are getting short on time. And um, just to, to kind of sum, sum this book up in, in the intro, you say um, time scales is not unlike a manifesto if a manifesto could be made proper to an age that has lost its faith in a reason's progress. Uh, manifesto, the manifesto born of the 19th century militant optimism about the march into history feels rather like an ancient relic. And then, and then you go on to talk about how, how you're writing with a W, writing with a R-I-G-H-T, and then rioting across disciplines to... Um, to really get at the the meat of of what you're trying to talk about, so I didn't know if you wanted to to talk about the idea of this being a not manifesto manifesto. Yeah, thank you, Aspen, for that question. Um, I think that's a great way to to take us out. That 
writing with a W, the writing with a GH, and the rioting um, that you mentioned um, stems from a, a tweet by Teju Cole. Um, we had hosted Teju um, at, at Penn, and so his work was, of course, very much on our mind. And I think it was Patricia Yu who, who saw that tweet, and it really encapsulated for us um, the tension, I think, productive tension in what we were trying to do or to see if it would be possible to do within the bounds of a bound book, which is um, can writing or can critical practices also contribute to activist writing practices and even um and, and even protest practices, which we uh, kind of twinned with rioting. Um, and we were, I think, you know, the, the work was produced, this book was produced, of course, amidst um, the many frustrations and outrages of the Trump administration, um, frustrations and outrages which continue on uh, in many instances past the end of that administration. Um, And there was a sense that we were unwilling to make scholarship that would only be useful to privileged scholars and that we didn't think that that was a good use of our time, that we really wanted to make something that would do work in the world, that would be writing, but that would also um, prompt activities that would be go beyond um, an academic space. Wow, that's super powerful. And one one piece of time that I I've been considering throughout this whole this this whole interview since we're doing it over over the digital space and um and and just kind of considering the last couple years where where we've you know, been subjected to Zoom or Microsoft Teams or different platforms like that, along with Twitter. Did did you think about digital time at all when you were when you were putting together this book? Was that was that a part of a conversation? Well, you know, um, uh, at the same time that we were um, writing the introduction to this book, both um, Patricia and I were deeply involved in a project to um, to archive federal environmental data. Um, it was called Data Refuge. And so we were thinking about the way that digital artifacts um, could be um, suppressed or even uh, we were worried could be um, even deleted um, by a climate denying um, federal administration. Um, so we were thinking about um, the digital uh, world all the time. But I think in particular, the temporality of the digital sphere wasn't something that was on our minds in the same way that it has become in pandemic. Um, Patricia, I'd love to, to hear your reflections on, on how um, digital temporalities, maybe as they percolated through the Data Refuge project, also might be a kind of subtext in this book. That's really interesting. I totally um, forgot about that, um, that all these projects were happening sort of simultaneously. Um, Yeah, I think what's interesting about the Data Refuge project was sort of the urgency um, around wanting to kind of make lots of good copies in a secure way um, of the sort of uh, federal and and state environmental um, data that Bethany was talking about. Um, But I guess what was sort of... um, most surprising to me, um, which shouldn't be, right, but sort of was where all of the environmental data was located. So it was located all across different agencies um, on different sort of agency websites and and archives and databases. And so um, it really required not just, or let me put it this way, it wasn't just a matter of us sort of sitting down and looking at that one, you know, full database of all environmental and climate data. Um, It required research um, and for different sort of local data rescue teams over, um, of which there were over 50 across North America um, to sort of uh, pinpoint which kind of environmental data sets that were important to 
um, or relevant to and most urgent to their sort of local um, kind of climate challenges. Now, I I um, share this anecdote because, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of thinking across disciplines and interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity. um, And I think it's just sort of at least conceptually aligns with this idea that, you know, climate is everywhere. Um, environment or the ideas of the environment are really located everywhere. Um, It's sort of become, you know, not become, but it is, I think, like another sort of vector, I mean, vectors of class, for example, or or we talk about gender, we talk about race in, in different um, scholarly scenarios. Um, but, you know, climate and, and the environment are really just sort of present. Um, and I, that was one of the things that I learned um, that, that I learned through the Data Refuge Project, but I guess that sort of pairs really well with what I, what, what we were doing, um, in co-editing timescales. That's really cool. And uh, thank you for, for sharing that. And, and I guess to, to really lead us out, um, you, you just, you just mentioned transdisciplinary and, and, and you speak about interdisciplinary throughout the book. And obviously it's this, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge, huge part of the, the practice of the book and, and the, and the, the ethics behind it. But, um, would you would you like to speak on the the differences between interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary and why why they're important? Sure, I can um, take a crack at that um, if you like, Aspen, and then um, love to hear Carolyn and Patricia as well. Um, the book um, is it speaks a lot of interdisciplinarity. It also speaks a lot, as we were just talking about, about writing, writing, and rioting. And I think if we were to write this book today, I at least would advocate that we would talk more rigorously about transdisciplinarity as opposed to interdisciplinarity. And the reason why I see them as in opposition is that interdisciplinarity, for all of its collaboration, still locates disciplinary expertise as within academic disciplines. Transdisciplinarity, on the other hand, moves beyond uh, established or recognized fields of uh, or disciplines. Um, in other words, it recognizes expertise uh, that it might include lived expertise, that might include indigenous science, that might include all kinds of um, troves of knowledge that have not been recognized by the colonial academy. Um, and I think um, Additionally, as we think about how we might have chit chats, how we might work with uncertain outcomes to generate slow research that is commensurate or slow science to again speak with philosophers, Bell Stangers, how we might generate research collaboratives that can represent and perhaps address the intersecting socio and ecological crises that we face, we must draw on expertise that it can be part of the solution and that has not been part of the problem because it has been systematically disenfranchised by racial capitalism. So for that reason, uh, in my more recent writing, uh, transdisciplinarity and transdisciplinary methods are where I am placing my hope, learning to collaborate with rigor, with understanding that different partners bring different resources to the table, that resource sharing, particularly by those such as myself in privileged academic spaces, um, is is incredibly important. I've been doing for the last couple of years a a lot of advising on community-based work um, that's originating um, in other university spaces. And it's quite shocking to see how many um, well-intentioned academics do not realize they need to remunerate community partners. I think there is a sense that, oh, isn't this fun that we're all collaborating together? And a, a kind of blindness on the part of many academics that they are asking for help and resources 
resources from often under-resourced or, or, or uh, nonprofits or community groups who are already stretched way too thin. I think we've become a little more cognizant of that since pandemic, um, but I wanted to use this time to really make a plea for transdisciplinary work that includes funded opportunities for non-academically based researchers. Yes, I think that, you know, Bethany's comments just make me think about the importance of infrastructure. And, you know, in the introduction, we talk about this. um, And, you know, the the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities is this fabulous space for interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary collaboration, for collaboration um, that's intergenerational among undergraduate, graduate, and students, as well as faculty, uh, alongside community partners with site-based projects like the Wetlands Project on the Schuylkill River, as well as collaboration with artists. And what makes this sort of collaboration possible? Well, you know, first of all, the infrastructure, right? The, The funding opportunities that Penn provides, as well as Bethany's tireless, tireless efforts. Um, and we, in the introduction, we talk about the importance of maintenance, right? Um, maintenance as, you know, the practice of sustaining programming and of sustaining a space that is welcoming to um, these different partners and of creating a space that can evolve that can you know see its own deficiencies and evolve over time to meet new needs um and you know i just think that time scales as a static bound book of course can't fully capture um the vibrant evolution of the pen program in environmental humanities from you know um an idea that Bethany had in collaboration with undergraduate students into the robust programming that it is today. But I just, I, I think that um, if there's one major takeaway that I, that I have from my experience, both um, learning from Bethany as the PPH programming began, as well as at my current institution, it's that, Uh, interdisciplinary programming takes time, it takes effort, it takes, um, you know, a lot of labor. And unfortunately, the university as an institution hasn't really caught up to ways to um, account for that labor in the same way that it accounts for publications like Timescales. And so I think that you know, if we're if we're dreaming up how how the university might also evolve and change to meet the needs of the 21st century, um, my hope would be that the university could begin to you know, kind of as as a structure, could begin to um, acknowledge and recognize the labor um, and the value of programming that is co- that is public facing, that's community facing. Um, like the programming that the Penn Program Environmental Humanities does. Just really quickly before we come to a close, um, what Bethany was saying reminds me a lot of this beautiful um, essay slash meditation co-written by Adela Licona and Eva Hayward that I remember just because I, I recently assigned it to my students. It's called Trans Waters Coalitional Thinking on Art and Environment. And um, in it, if I may just quote what they say, they say that, um, quote, the prefix trans promises movements across, but never without holding tightly to the locations that it is moving from. Trans is a prefix that is prepositional. It is a crossing space-time of movement within relationship. As such, trans materializes the process of movements. Trans marks the awareness of witness. We might say trans is moving, mattering, um, foregrounding political lines and possibilities, and refusing to dissolve difference in favor of recognizing coalitional modes of emergence as possibilities. And so with that, I think, um, kind of beautiful exposition on what trans sort of means and 
the um, epistemological and political possibilities of thinking transdisciplinarily rather than interdisciplinarily, if you will, um, for me sort of sums up um, why kind of conceptually speaking, um, transdisciplinary work as coalitional work, as building kind of accomplices um, that may not have seemed possible. Um, and according to or the university as an institution should still not be possible, perhaps, um, is sort of something that continues to guide my work today. I just want to add um, to that um, beautiful quotation that we just heard. Um, trans, of course, um, implies a queering. And we are very much in solidarity with queer and trans scholars in our desire to create a kind of queer environmentalism, um, one that um, really tries to do environmentalism at a, at a slant um, and to refresh it, to introduce younger voices. And it's such a pleasure to speak with you all today. And thank you so much for allowing me to come into this space as well, because everything that you wrote in the book and everything that you've said today has really rang true in my experience and my, my, my hopes of entering the institution and trying to negotiate some kind of space where we can have these, 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 these transitory kind of environments and ecosystems that allow different people to express themselves um, and and really invert and queer the the narrative. So so thank you so much um, for for being willing to do this interview and and, and letting me um, have the opportunity. Thank you, Aspen. Thank you, Aspen, and thank you, Patricia and Carolyn. It was great to talk with you. Yes, thanks so much, Aspen, for having us. All right. Well, thank you. And um, to everybody out there, bye-bye.